Welcome to episode 119 of Behind the Mission, a show that sparks conversations with Psychomer Trust partners and educational experts. My name is Dwayne France, and each week I'll be having conversations with podcast guests that will equip you with tools and resources to effectively engage with and support military service members, veterans, and their families. You can find the show on all the podcast players by going to psychomer.org forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us on Behind the Mission. Our work and mission are supported by generous partnerships and sponsors who also believe that education changes lives. Our sponsor this week is PsychArmor, the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners, as well as custom training options for organizations. On today's episode, I'm featuring a conversation with Angela Johnson, the founder and executive director of Valor Village, a program that provides no-cost overnight lodging, resources, and peer support to loved ones who have traveled to southeastern Virginia to visit an incarcerated veteran. As the mother of a formerly incarcerated disabled Army veteran, Angela is proximate to and impassioned by her work as a social justice leader. She brings a wealth of experience and a record of accomplishment from having served in previous roles as Washington Bureau Research Manager, Senior Research Analyst, and Senior Project Manager for major news outlets and nonpartisan advocacy enterprises. To find out more about Angela by checking out her bio on our show notes, let's get into my conversation with her and come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. Angela, so glad to be able to share the work that you're doing to support the families of veterans and by extension, the veterans themselves. The work you're doing is directly connected to your lived experience as a mother of a veteran. I'd like to provide you the opportunity to share about yourself and why what you're doing is so important to you. Oh, I would love to do that. And Dwayne, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to be here. I thank you for inviting me into this safe and really powerful space. It means a lot to me just to reach the veteran audience. The way Valor Village came to be definitely was a birth out of my lived experience and my purpose, a purpose and passion and meaningfulness and a way that I was able to rebuild after feeling that I was broken from the crisis going through a crisis of incarceration with a loved one who was my son. In November 2014, my husband, William, who came to my job, he came to the parking garage and we sat in the car. He had just gotten some terrible news and he just wanted to be there with me. And he told me that our son, Andrew, in California, I'd been arrested, and he was charged with two counts of attempted murder. His bail was $2 million, and he was facing 85 years to life. That's what I heard, and that's what I could not process. I could not process it because anyone would talk to you about our son will tell you that he's charming, he's witty, he's intelligent, and he's just an extraordinary man. So I didn't understand it. It couldn't have been him. And also as African-American woman from birth, one of my greatest fears was that my son would be incarcerated. So I did everything I felt that I could do to protect him against it in prayers and just guiding him things that he should have been able to do, but he couldn't because there was a fear for his safety there. 
And to know that it wasn't enough was more than I could bear. And it was something that I definitely could not accept. Once I heard that he was facing that kind of time, you know, he was incarcerated, I literally physically lost my voice. I could not speak. I could not form words. That was for a few days. And when I was able to regain some speech, I could not make coherent sentences. I was just ruminating and I would blurt out nonsensical phrases. And I did everything I could to try to cope, but it really felt that it was more than I could bear. So what I did do was listen and learn as much as possible. So in doing that, I learned that Andrew, who is an honorably discharged veteran, he's service disabled. He was diagnosed with PTSD and a traumatic brain injury. He served in the 160th Special Ops Unit prior to his military separation. Then immediately after returning from service, he moved from Northern Virginia to California. He lost everything to keep his promise to his battle buddy who was injured and had become a quadriplegic in serving in Afghanistan. So Andrew became his full-time certified caregiver. One night, while he was going to the store, he was attacked. Two men tried to rob him, and Andrew did draw his weapon and shoot two warning shots. These men were drunk, and they were high, and they were undeterred. So they continued to come for him, and he did, against training, shoot in a way that after assessing harm that could be done, he shot them in the leg. And he shot one in the leg and he shot one in the hip. The men who we later found out were brothers and had been wreaking havoc all over that town that night, been in a number of establishments and lots of it's terrorizing pretty much people within the community. We learned that later on, but they were taken to the hospital. They were treated for superficial wounds, bandaged, and they were treated for alcohol poisoning. But as I said, Drew was arrested and he was facing life in prison. And it was just the most bad, unreasonable, most difficult situation that I could ever face. I knew that I had to be an advocate for Andrew. I had to fight for him that this was just too egregious. The, I believe it was a conviction rate at that time, 98%, and it remains high. As we proceeded through the legal system, two judges did dismiss the case, and the prosecutor was relentless and refiled. So the first judge, he refiled. The second judge went to the California Supreme Court, where his decision was reversed, reversed his decision, and we're just in it. So all of this time, now this is, my son is a pretrial detainee. He was detained and held in custody for three and a half years. When he was first arrested, immediately he was put into solitary confinement. So he spent the first 16 months, almost three and a half years, in solitary confinement. 
And as I began to seek help in helping our family and to help to kind of craft a participatory defense, I learned and I studied and I am an IR research analyst and I just sought out every resource that I could find to see how we might best help him. And I did find wonderful attorneys and organizations work exclusively with veterans to craft their defense. And our attorney was receptive to working alongside them because there is a difference. And that's a really important component, be able to have any defense, an attorney, a person, and advocates are familiar with military culture. They think to know that. So during this whole time, we're just spinning down our life savings. We have the private investigators. We have attorneys in an appeal. You have a different attorney. We had the commissary and the plated telephone charges and all that goes into making sure that our son, while incarcerated, is not disconnected. The whole time in our fight for his freedom was to keep the connection and to make sure that he wasn't in a state of helplessness or hopelessness. So we would send him books. That was also an added expense, all of these things. So we didn't have the money to really stay in a decent place. This is in San Jose, California, which is Silicon Valley. And depending on events and things that were going on there, the the rates were, could be astronomical. Sometimes William and I would have to stay in a place that wasn't safe or dangerous area. We were blessed to have a family member who did work for a hotel chain, and she provided us with friends and family discounts. That was a blessing when that wasn't available. Separately or together, we would have to figure out where we were going to stay. So sometimes we fly to California, we would have our visitation set up, we'd get there, and the jail would say, no, he's on lockdown, the whole jail is on lockdown. What do you do in that case? You fly home, you're losing this airplane that could have went to the defense. Sometimes we would, if we can get approved for a visit within a couple of days, we would extend our visit, but we're not in a safe area. So there was never a sense of peace of mind. And then my son, being a veteran, of course, he wants to have the security and knowing that we're safe. Mm -hmm. We're not telling him Mm -hmm. where we are. And yet you have to think through all of the legal aspects and ways that you're being an advocate for him. And this is regardless of the situation, just the introduction into the justice system, advocating and making sure that even a vet is there being accountable for an offense that we've done, that is your love. That is your baby. That is someone that you've supported and know. So you're going to be there and you're going to make sure that they're able to be okay while they're going through that crisis. And that does take a toll. And I wanted to make sure that I would just say, I will pray. It's like, God, if I can just get through this, make sure that I can ease this expense, this level of stress, and this type of isolation from other people who are in a similar circumstance. 
And there are many. There are so many. And I'm just so thankful that former secretaries, Chuck Hagel and Leon Panetta, put together the Justice Commission to put out the research, to get the data that has been just void. It's either not there or it's very sketchy on what is going on with the veterans that are actually just as involved in their preliminary report. They state that there's one in three veterans have reported that they have been arrested. So I did get my voice back, as I like to say, that military mom is never down. She's either up or she's getting up. And I got up. Absolutely. I got up. You did. Now, and I thank you for amplifying my voice on this platform, but this is now my life's mission, and it is an honor. Every family member that I can help, there's no greater satisfaction. Oh, absolutely. And definitely your passion and your perseverance is absolutely amazing. Now, ultimately, Drew was found not guilty. He was able to go to trial and the trial, he was found not guilty and he was released. I think a lot of people who are not involved in the criminal legal system may be surprised about how long someone can be detained pending trial. If people listen to that story and say, well, how does it three years? But this is actually a common occurrence, especially in our criminal legal system at this point. If you're talking about appeals and delays and stays and back and forth, that it isn't uncommon for someone to be incarcerated for a significant period of time before they're even able to go to trial. That is true. That is true. And this whole thing was baptism by fire. You learn that. These are the things that are not discussed. These are the things that are behind the veil. And I discovered all of these things along the way. So it was just injury upon injury each time with a hit and, and, and trauma. But they definitely can be detained. Drew was incarcerated with a man who had been waiting for trial for nine years. It is definitely not uncommon. And it's interesting. Some of the folks who I speak with would say that they have the a veteran is drinking or who has a, a drug problem and say, oh, yeah, let him go to jail and just wait it out for a couple of days, dry out. And that is the most dangerous thing that can be done. Like, it's just not Mayberry. Right. Nobody's no, coming in and lock them up for two days. It's completely not like that. I went into it thinking that when I first that I heard that he was in jail, what jail, what warehouse, he'd stay there. But there were folks in his jail that asked to just to go to Pelican Bay because the jails are overcrowded. There's mm-hmm. just that much violence as there is in prison. And you can, from one incident, end up staying four years while you're waiting for your case to be heard. So that's something that people are not knowledgeable about. Mm-hmm. And I was definitely one of them for that. And I think some of that really is just people are unaware because they haven't experienced it. But then obviously you're taking your experience in helping to educate others. The unique way that you're helping the families of those who served us through your program, Valor Village, it's somewhat of a unique program that provides support to families for veterans involved in the criminal legal system like your son was, like you were, which happens more often than people would think. People think of veterans as having honorably served but they don't automatically think that 
And I even said it before, whenever I was engaged with our local veterans court, I'm one bad decision of way from being in front of a judge. Like it, it's right. not an uncommon thing for veterans to come back home, to be coping in maybe maladaptive ways and find themselves in the back of a police car, for example. Most definitely. Of course, we know to be arrested. You don't have to commit it from, you just have to be accused of doing it. So where do you go from there? These are things that we have to learn. And then an instance where someone has from, we definitely in redemption rather than the state or federal officers just doling out severe punishment. The goal is to make sure that the veteran is able to rebuild and be reunited it is that is very possible when those connections are not broken. And I think that support and even just the military service is key when it comes to veterans involved in the criminal legal system. I was having a conversation with a mentor of mine who happens to be the judge of our local court, who is a veteran himself, like many of the judges who are leading these veteran courts are. And he said that his veteran docket looks very different than his normal docket. He said, when I have veterans come in front of me, they never saw themselves thinking I'm going to be in front of a judge one day. And you as a mother of a veteran, yes, there is that fear of hopefully my child won't be involved in the criminal legals, but this wasn't something that you were considering as a possibility. This was something that came out of left field. And it's not a situation in which veterans find themselves nor military families, because it's something that would, that, like you said, people thought about Drew it's so inconceivable that it, he would be even be in this situation. Exactly. And that is the case with so many veterans. The majority of, I believe it's around 70% on a discharged. They had screening prior to going into the military. There were underlying issues that perhaps were not addressed. And sometimes we don't always identify because part of the training is actually but that's masking in order to be able to maintain safety and also accomplish mission. Unfortunately, a lot of times we don't learn or see these summaries until later. Or even within the veteran, you didn't recognize his PTSD. Right. That took a family pointing out things that we knew that were different and us all being trained first. We was just determined to stay within that kind of same mentality and same structure, but he was never forced to deprogram. Yeah, that's definitely something. Sure that we continue to educate others on and we do that we provide that those materials about PTSD, traumatic traumatic brain injury. It's been an invisible injury that we don't see as we do have places for families. Absolutely wonderful organization provide those lodging areas for families who have wanted. Yes. You can see the one. But when it's those type of invisible wounds for the family member to be feel shunned or ashamed or guilty, you want to make sure that they are not deterred reaching out should there be help. So we are the first nation provided a justice nation. We spearheaded it, the standard bearers and just 
open so many people. Looking forward to getting to the point in this country where we won't need it. But for now, we do. And we'll get a new child summer. And, I, and that's what I find so inspiring about your story is you go through this very traumatic experience. You help your son through his traumatic experience and you come out the other side. And I think nobody would blame you for just saying my family has gone through this traumatic experience and I'm just going to focus on my family. But you have then taken this experience and you and like you said before, I'm going to help other families because you know that there are other families going through it. So I'd like to talk about Valor Village itself a little bit. When I first learned about the program, like you just mentioned, it's like the Fisher House for hospitals, only for incarcerated veterans. And when I heard about that, I was like, it makes absolute sense. All of the veterans that I used to go visit, and, and I've, I used to go into our county jail every Tuesday to visit incarcerated veterans. I would go to our state penitentiary here in Colorado probably two or three times to talk to veterans that are serving out sentences. It never dawned on me, even as a clinician working with these veterans, is where were their spouses and their parents and their siblings and how were they supporting? So that's really what you do with Valor Village is there in Virginia, you provide a space for families when they are working with their veteran involved in the criminal legal system. Yes, that's exactly what we do. After going through our crisis, I was able to purchase a property at auction. Veterans in the community and other advocates, folks in the community came out and helped and donated and helped rebuild. And I worked and still do uh, full time and contribute and do everything we can to stand that residence up. It was a historic property that was actually the original family that lived there. There, there were over a hundred veterans within that family, and they had been involved in military service in the Spanish-American War. So I was able to have that house renovated. And we're still working on some minor things. It, it's looking really good, and I like to call it the house that Brave rebuilt. It's looking and beautiful. I know being, yeah. you're being very <laughs> modest. But, My and brother we'll, share, is we'll share pictures in the show notes, but it looks beautiful. But what's more beautiful is the support that you provide for the people that stay there. Yeah. And by folks coming in, helping, they were, we were able to garner the support, have this justice station within the community and educate the community and damp down the stigma and really the fear of whenever incarceration is mentioned and make sure that uh, families are welcomed. So they're in a very safe place. Part of what we offer is just that respite care where they can come in and just relax. Everything is set up for them. They self-help books, do information about the different units, that different military units, all types of resources and information, and just some books that are just comforting, music wonderful amenities where they can just relax and rock on a porch and walk out at the Chesapeake Bay, take long walks, but just take that time out a minute from that crisis. It's a little bit of time from that crisis to reconnect with themselves. And as they grow stronger, they're better advocates for that. And we also have everybody who's connected with Valor Village, the entire staff, as a background in having been just involved or formerly incarcerated. So we have staff of veteran and justice 
advocates that are able to speak to that family member in a way that will proximate to their problem in a way that they would not get that type of support from others who haven't been with. And what I find most often is that when a family member, and this was my case, and it, it did take me a long time to work through, so this is how I recognize the need. But each family member that comes in their first visit, it will either be myself or another justice advocate. We always let them know it's not your fault. It doesn't matter what the circumstance is. Loved ones will find a way to take that responsibility. They have waited for that veteran safe return. They have been there sacrificing. They have supported. And they just, each one feels like they will step. That was my hurdle. And I see that as the first hurdle in just speaking with folks that come in. And there's just a sense of relief from them. And we can go from there. But just just that that antidote to sadness is connection. And for them to have that. So we do provide that peer support. And we are available through our helpline. We're available right there on the property should they want to talk. And we're also there to provide resources and referrals should they need them. But we definitely do a lot of coaching. It, and, and we're available to the additional culture. And I think it just, again, it's one of those concepts that when I heard it, I was like, it's amazing. It's almost intuitive common sense. I think that it's one of those ideas that it may sound new to people, although it shouldn't be. Like you said, there are these needs. Every person incarcerated, just like we talked about, every service member has a family that supports them. Every person who is incarcerated, whether they're connected to their support network or not, has a network around. And if the network is there and the network is healthy, then like you said, redemption is possible. Recidivism can be lower. So I absolutely applaud the work that you're doing. If people wanted to find out more about Valor Village, they may have some families who may be able to benefit from the resources, or they just want to find out more about what you're doing or support you in some way. How can they do that? Well, I would love it if they would go ahead and feel free to check out our website. And we have the information there and also have links to our social media. And they would follow us on social media. That would be an action that would, even that smaller action that just takes seconds is a great help because it does position us for funding to do our grant writing. So that alone would be a tremendous help for us to do. Right now, we are doing it on our own, but no matter what, you know, continue. And we do pride a lot of honor. Oh, that's so great. I will make sure that all the links to those are the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for amplifying my voice. Once again, we would like to thank this week's sponsor, PsychArmor. PsychArmor is the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners, as well as custom training options for organizations. Once again, my conversation with Angela went on a bit long, so I'll keep my remarks here brief. One point that I do want to bring up is something that I realized when I was working in this space, 
that not a lot of people are all that familiar with, the differences between jail and prison. Jails are typically community-based facilities that hold individuals who are serving short sentences, typically less than a year, or are holding individuals who are pending trial before they're released or sentenced to prison. Prisons, on the other hand, are for those who are serving sentence post-conviction, usually sentences longer than a year. They have different budgets, different resources, and, as Angela mentioned, serving time in a county jail can be as hard as, or even worse than, serving time in prison. But in working with incarcerated veterans, I knew some who, like her son, spent time in the county jail for years before their case was resolved. And it can be a difficult situation for everyone involved. But if this is something that piques your interest and you want to learn how to get more involved, check out Angela's website and see how you can support veterans involved in the criminal legal system in your community. So I hope you appreciated my conversation with Angela. If you did, we'd like to hear from you. So if you have some feedback, let us know. Drop a review in your podcast player of choice or send us an email at info at We're always glad to hear from listeners, both feedback on the show and suggestions for future guests. For this week's Psychomer Resource of the Week, I'd like to share a previous podcast episode, episode 52 with Scott Taroki about veterans courts and justice for vets. In this episode, you can learn more about supporting veterans in the criminal legal system and learn about Justice for Vets, the nation's leading organization advancing the importance of veteran treatment courts as programs to support these veterans. You can find a link to the resource in the show notes. So thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find in the podcast app, as well as on the Psychummer website, psychummer.org forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can find hundreds of online training videos delivered by nationally recognized subject matter experts who are committed to educating the civilian community about military culture. All of these courses are free to individual learners. You wouldn't be listening if you didn't care, and it's that curiosity and passion for supporting service members and their families that we want to encourage and increase. Come back each week for another conversation and make sure to engage with Psychummer on social media to let us know what you thought about the show. I'd like to express special thanks to Operation Encore and Navy Seahawk pilot Jerry Maniscalco for our theme song, Don't Kill the Messenger. This show was produced by Headspace and Timing and all rights to the show remain reserved by Psycharmor. Much appreciation to the team at Psycharmor that makes the show happen. Carol Turner, Vice President of Strategic Communications, who keeps me on track and is an outstanding guest coordinator, support and transcripts by Emma Atherall. Feel free to share the show. In fact, we request that you do, but make sure to let folks know where you heard it. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, stay aware, get educated, and be well.